Are you looking for a new job? Then today's sponsor might be right up your alley. Today's episode is brought to you by RGF Professional Recruitment Japan, the bilingual arm of Recruit, Japan and Asia's largest recruiting and information service company, helping thousands of people every year to unleash their potential. RGF partners with multinational and domestic businesses with a global outlook in Japan to provide market-leading bilingual talent across all industries. Their career consultants ensure that your job search is smooth and stress-free whilst identifying the best opportunities to meet your career and personal goals. RGF specialises in finding positions for skilled professionals across all functions of enterprise technology, professional services and consulting, consumer technology, back office and finance, industrial and manufacturing and healthcare. Visit rgf-professional.jp, that's rgf-professional.jp, to register your resume and unleash your potential today. That link is in the show notes. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times, I'm Oscar Boyd. This week, as Vladimir Putin's grim war in Ukraine escalates, Noah Snyder, the Tokyo bureau chief and former Moscow correspondent for The Economist, explains the reasons for the conflict, the lengths to which Japan is going to support Ukraine, and how the war will redefine relationships between Japan and its northern neighbour, Russia. Noah Snyder, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So you lived in and reported from Russia and Ukraine from 2013 to 2020. You were one of the Moscow correspondents there for The Economist. I just want to start by asking, what was Ukraine like when you first visited the country? So the first time I visited Ukraine was actually when I was an exchange student studying in in Russia. And I just went for a quick trip to Kiev. Uh, And at the time, first of all, Ukraine was a peaceful place. And second of all, it was was kind of caught under a corrupt autocratic leader in in Viktor Yanukovych. Mm. It looked a lot like the slightly dilapidated parts of the rest of the former Soviet Union. You could see the the seeds of a different future in Kiev, you know, a handful of hipster coffee shops and, Mm. and bars and things opening up. But it was at the time, it was a, a country very much in transition. And, and I went back uh, as a reporter for the first time in uh, 2014, after Ukrainians overthrew uh, the Yanukovych government, uh, which had, had backed out of an association agreement with the European Union. So a sort of step in the direction of, of Western integration. These are the scenes that triggered the breakup of Ukraine. Scenes that have brought the world to the brink of a new Cold War. Unarmed protesters gunned down in the streets by the riot police who were retreating from Kiev's Maidan Square. And how did you notice the country began to change in the wake of that revolution? Yeah, well, I mean, in the immediate aftermath of the revolution, there was there was chaos and there was the beginning of this war. Um, so the first thing that happened was, was that Russia annexed Crimea, uh, the peninsula in, in southern Ukraine and the Black Sea. And then war began in, in eastern Ukraine, in the Donbass region, where Russia kind of fueled a separatist movement, sent in tanks and eventually its own soldiers to carve out these, these kind of uh, self-proclaimed uh, statelets, these self-proclaimed republics uh, of Lugansk and, and Donetsk. And at the time, yeah, Ukraine was trying to reconstitute itself as a nation, trying to reconstitute itself as a government, but also trying to fight a war with its much larger neighbour. And did that war feel like it was largely confined to the country's eastern regions or was there a sense across the entire nation that the Ukraine was at war with Russia? 
Well, there were there were a lot of worries, you know, in the initial weeks and months that Russia's campaign would go much further. People thought maybe they would try to take all of the territory from eastern Ukraine down through Crimea and to Odessa to create this land bridge or to recreate this sort of czarist era mm. territory that they called Novorossiya. People were worried about Kharkiv, which is a big predominantly Russian-speaking city in the east. So there was a lot of concern that the war would expand. U- ultimately, it, it didn't in, in large part because of a lack of support amongst the Ukrainian population uh, uh, in those cities. Um, uh, and so the conflict... And when you say support there, you mean support in those cities to join Russia, to become yes, part of Russia. Yes, yeah. And so the conflict eventually kind of settled into a, a, a simmering stalemate in, in 2015. Uh, there was a, a nominal peace agreement signed, which is called the Minsk Agreements. And that kind of froze the conflict in place. But it wasn't real peace. I mean, mm-hmm. there were still soldiers dying uh, every day, refugees, internally displaced people moving around the country. So Kiev got back on its feet, for sure. And, and Ukrainian politics continued in its hectic but really democratic way. Now Ukrainians go to the polls on Sunday to choose their next president. After a first round vote at the end of March, the two remaining candidates are Vladimir Zelensky, a television star, or Petro Poroshenko, the incumbent president. And Kiev, you know, in the in the ensuing years really started to flourish. I mean, to the point where people talked about Kiev as kind of the new Berlin. Mm. Um, there was an amazing music scene, burgeoning kind of food scene. Um, so you had this kind of strange cognitive dissonance, a country and a, and a city um, growing on the one hand, but but a war simmering in the background and, and everyone kind of living with the specter of that war coming closer. So how did that kind of simmering tension, that simmering war kind of really escalate into what we've seen over the past two weeks? Well, the simple answer is that Vladimir Putin made the decision to start a massive war against his neighbor. There's obviously a lot of background and and history and and context that's important to to understanding that decision. And I, I think there are a couple of layers that are worth keeping in mind. One is is the historical dimension. The relationship between Russia and Ukraine as territories, but also as nations or as, as peoples, um, as, as, as distinct identities, goes back nearly a thousand years. Putin's Russia traces its, its origins back to Kiev and Rus, where orthodoxy was, was first adopted in the sort of eastern Slavic lands. And over the course of nearly that millennium, there's been both constant attempts to carve out a distinct Ukrainian nation and a distinct Ukrainian identity, language, history, culture, and uh, attempts by Russia as, as essentially an empire to subjugate Ukraine. So mm-hmm. I think there's a, there's a kind of imperial dimension to this, and we see that in Putin's own justifications for, for what he's doing. There's also a, a more contemporary geopolitical dimension, which is that Ukraine has been moving in the direction of Western institutions, both the European Union, but also NATO, and Russia perceives that as, as a threat. And finally, there's another layer which um, which has to do with the fact that Ukraine has also undergone a, a kind of democratic transition. It's an imperfect democracy, but it is a democracy. And that is a, a dangerous example to have nearby for an aging autocrat like Putin. This isn't a faraway place um, with a different history and a different culture. These are people who look like Russians, who speak the same language in many cases, but who st- seem to be able to live under a very different political system. And so I think that the existence of and, and the, 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 the growth of that example on, on his doorstep is, is another um, factor in this conflict. Mm-hmm. So you're saying the spatial and 
cultural proximity of Ukraine to Russia provides a direct challenge or perhaps maybe too obvious an example of a direct alternative to Putin's rule. Exactly. It stands as an example of an alternative path. All of that said, I think as this buildup, this military buildup happened around Ukraine's borders in recent weeks, virtually no one I was talking to, you know, friends and contacts, both in Russia mm-hmm. and in Ukraine, expected that Putin would would take this decision, namely to launch an all-out war mm-hmm. um, against all of Ukraine. The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has repeatedly said the situation is under control and that Russia's quote-unquote provocations are more of the same since uh, the Kremlin sent troops here back in 2014. People thought maybe he would recognize the independence of these self-declared republics, which is the first thing he did on, on February 22nd. Most people thought he would stop there because... The idea of Russia launching an invasion uh, of this scale against Ukraine was unfathomable mm. for people on on both sides of the conflict. There are still deep personal ties, family ties. Everyone has a friend, a cousin, schoolmate um, on one side or the other. The scope of the destruction involved obviously carries massive risks for Russia itself. And clearly the Russian leadership sort of miscalculated and how easy it would be to to take Ukraine over. So, so people were, I think, shocked and, and stunned mm. um, uh, that, that Putin chose this route. And over the past two weeks, we've really seen this war escalate and escalate and escalate. At first, at least, it seemed like the destruction was fairly minimal, although nonetheless very significant but really the last week we've seen a real ramp up in terms of russian military activities i think a lot more shelling um we've seen the number of people fleeing as refugees increase dramatically currently over 1.7 million people are thought to have fled ukraine as refugees the vast majority to poland and you've been since the start of the most recent outbreak, you've been translating the voices of Ukrainians and Russians affected by the war and sharing them on a Twitter account um, you've created called War in Translation, which I'll put a link to that account in the show notes. What are you hearing from people that you are in contact with? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's that's important to recognize is that this is no longer a contained conflict. This is a full-scale war. Hmm. There are bombs falling all across Ukraine, from airfields in the West that are being targeted by Russian missiles to massive urban centers in Kiev, Kharkiv, Mariupol, and it looks like soon Odessa as well. These are cities where millions of people live. And, you know, as you mentioned, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, are making the choice to flee Mm. um, because it's simply too dangerous to stay. Many others are basically in hiding um, in bunkers. Um, I'm exchanging messages every day with friends who are sleeping in their basements or sleeping in subway stations and only go above ground uh, to try to find uh, a bit of bread to eat mm. the coming night. So this has become an extremely dire situation very quickly. The casualty figures among civilians are, are, are already in the hundreds, and, and that's almost certainly a, a massive undercount. There are videos coming out of all across Ukraine of really brutal uh, attacks, not not just on, on military installations, which mm. is what the Russian government insists it's doing, but on uh, hospitals, on schools, on apartment blocks, um, uh, civilian areas. I think that's one of the most notable things about this war is how kind of accessible a lot of that information, whether it's in people sharing their experiences on social media or sending videos, how 21st century this war 
does feel and how easy it is to access and see very personal videos of the the tragedies that are unfolding absolutely and and you know that's what we've been trying to do on this this twitter feed is is kind of to take some of that conversation to take some of those voices that are appearing on social media that are kind of narrating the experience of this war in real time so we've been trying to sort of take those um, voices and and translate them into english and and actually we're, we're hoping to start doing so into into japanese as well we're looking for translators and folks with language skills who can help so so please do check out the the link in the show notes mm. how should people contact you if they're interested in helping we have a website which is warintranslation.org and there's uh, sign-up sheets there for for volunteering uh, as well as sort of links to the platforms where we're we're publishing obviously it's important to to keep up with the news but important also to to hear directly from people living through this tragedy the other thing I would say is is important to keep in mind is that this is a, a tragedy for for Ukraine, but it's it's also a catastrophe for for Russia itself. Mm. Personally, this is sort of watching two countries that I have lived in and 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 loved destroyed really overnight. Obviously, there is some degree of popular support inside Russia for what Putin is doing, but there's also a lot of dissent and a lot of people who are not happy about this. Um, but they have woken up in, in essentially kind of totalitarian dictatorships. So the, the violence uh, abroad, the violence against Ukraine um, has also come with a, a, an extreme sort of escalation of repression inside Russia. And so, uh, you know, on the Russian side, I've had dozens of personal friends who fled um, people are trying to get out of the country if they can because they fear that there will be martial law and that um, young men especially will be forced to serve. People who are staying, many are choosing to protest, and we've seen thousands of people arrested across Russia in, in recent weeks. Obviously, in the first place, unfathomable tragedy for, for people in Ukraine, but it's also uh, uh, an absolute disaster inside Russia. I'd like to move on to discuss how Japan's role is shaping up in this conflict. And so to start with, what is the Japanese government's basic position on this war? So the Japanese government, like much of the world, or certainly much of the, the Western world, has seen this this conflict as a real challenge to the world order as such, rather than local territorial conflict or a, a, a contained European problem. Uh, and that's a big, um, a big shift, I think, from uh, the Japanese government's position um, back in, in 2014, when Russia first annexed Crimea and, and sort of started the, the initial phase of the war in, in eastern Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I know that Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has been very outspoken about this, saying, uh, and this is a quote, this invasion of Ukraine by Russia is an attempt to unilaterally change the status quo by force and shakes the very foundations of the international order. It's a clear violation of international law, which cannot be tolerated. So very clearly condemning the war. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, it's been striking to see just how quickly the Japanese government, um, which of course isn't known for quick um, uh, uh, policy um, moves or, or quick sort of changes in policy, um, has done essentially a, a 180 when, when it comes to, to Russia policy and, and has taken, you know, what are for, for Japan some, some um, rather 
unusual and, and maybe even drastic steps um, to, to support Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And that topic of Japan's relationship with Russia is something I'd like to come back to later on in the episode. But for now, let's continue on that theme you just mentioned. There's been regular contact between Prime Minister Kishida and Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky over the past few weeks. So far, what has Japan offered Ukraine in terms of support? Yeah, so there's there's a few sort of layers to this. The most striking is is a decision to send um, bulletproof vests and and sort of defense kit, not weapons, but military supplies, mm-hmm. um, which of course for for Japan with its its pacifist constitution is a rather unusual step. We've also seen Japan announce plans to accept refugees coming from Ukraine. I've heard from from sources that that that's the details of that are still being worked out, and mm-hmm. uh, it may not be quite as sort of expansive as as it might um, sound. But that too is a is a significant step for a country that that tends not to um, welcome many refugees. Right, that's something we've covered on deep dive before that. Japan currently has one of the lowest refugee acceptance rates of any country in the world and certainly the lowest in the G7. Exactly. Uh, And then there's been, you know, uh, uh, financial assistance. I know the Ukrainian government and Ukrainian embassy here in, in Tokyo have been discussing actively with Japanese counterparts about how Japan can can be involved in you know reconstruction efforts, uh, how Japan can be involved in in rescue efforts. Um, there's obviously a lot of experience in you know infrastructure and emergency response um, here in Japan. So um, I think we will see several more sort of layers added to the to the Japanese response in in the coming weeks. And what about the Japanese public? What's their response been like to the outbreak of this war? Yeah, I mean, I've been surprised, to be honest, by how deeply this has sort of penetrated public consciousness here in in Japan. You know, we've seen Japanese government buildings, Japanese castles across the country lit up in in Ukrainian colors. We've seen thousands of people um, coming to to march in the center of of Tokyo. Uh, We've seen prominent individuals like the CEO of Rakuten, uh, Mikitani Hiroshi, uh, making, you know, large personal donations. We've even seen Japanese citizens themselves contributing to to accounts that the Ukrainian embassy set up um, to the tune of, of something like 2 billion yen mm. um, at the moment. Which is about $17 million or so. Exactly. So, you know, I was struck going to the the, the march this past weekend through um, central Tokyo. That uh, uh, compared even to a week earlier um, to, uh, uh, to another um, sort of demonstration uh, at Hachiko Square, far more people, both in terms of, you know, there being more Japanese rather than just Ukrainian residents or folks connected to the Ukrainian community here. You know, I saw tons of Japanese folks wearing blue and yellow kimono, mm-hmm. walking with Ukrainian flags, but also, you know, representatives of the Taiwanese community, the Uyghur community, the Burmese community. So I think a real sense amongst folks here in Japan that this conflict is is connected to something larger, that this is about a broader kind of struggle with you know, different forms of authoritarian mm. repression or authoritarian violence. I haven't been in, in Japan uh, as long as I was, was in Russia or Ukraine, but uh, it certainly seems to me that this is, is uh, resonated at an, at an unusual level. And just to mention, I spoke to my mom three days ago, last time when she was laying in the bathroom floor, hiding from bombs. 
I was out of Tokyo last week and I came back、um, and came out of Shinjuku Station actually on Saturday. And there was a huge stage that was set up on the kind of main concourse outside of the,、uh, one of the Shinjuku Station entrances with music and speeches and a really big crowd of people listening, watching, supporting as best they could. Yeah. And I think the, you know, the big. Question going forward, and, and this is true not only for Japan but for the rest of the world, is, is what happens with that attention?、Hmm. Um, you know, we,、uh, we see time after time with conflicts in different parts of the world that there is a kind of outpouring of support and, and a, a, a you know, burst of attention, but that it, it tends to wane as the days turn into weeks and the weeks turn into months and、uh, the bloody conflict grinds on. And it seems likely, sadly, that that will be the, the scenario in Ukraine. So I hope that folks won't get tired of thinking about this or tired of following what's happening or, or tired of making clear and making visible that,、uh, that they do care.、Um, I know it. Means a lot to friends in the midst of it. I was sending pictures from the, the protests on, on Saturday to friends in bunkers in Kiev, and all of them were really touched by,、mm. um, by what they saw and by the feeling that the world isn't forgetting about them. I'd like to discuss Japan and Russia's relationship and How that's developed over the past few decades and how it will change in response to this war. Prior to the last two weeks of military action that we've seen, how did Japan view Russia? Well, there's obviously a long history, which includes a, a, a direct war of their own between、uh, Russia and Japan. And, and in fact, Japan has its own, as, as we know, territorial dispute with Russia、um, over the, the,、uh, what Japan calls the Northern Territories, what Russian calls the Kuril Islands. Right. It's easy to forget, I think, that Japan and Russia are actually neighbors. So vast is the size of the Russian landmass. And actually, if you go to some of the parts of Northern Japan, like the town of Wakanai, the road signs there have Russian written on them alongside the Japanese. And this territorial dispute you're talking about concerns four islands that are just off the northeast coast of Hokkaido that were controlled by Japan until the Of World War II, but that are now under Russian administration. Yeah, Russia is not an,、uh, an abstract, distant question for, for Japan. More recently, there's been a big effort in, in Japan to try to maintain at least a functional relationship with Russia, even、mm. after、um, 2014, even after the annexation of Crimea. Japan was hesitant to impose harsh sanctions. Japan stood apart from other partners in, in the West and in the G7 in terms of, of how it dealt with Russia. And, you know, especially under the, the、um, Abe Shinzo government, there was a big effort to sort of maintain relations with Russia in the hopes of resolving that territorial dispute, in the hopes of concluding a, a formal peace treaty to, to end the Second World War, but also in the hopes of sort of keeping Russia and China from forming too tight、uh, a, a kind of unified front as they face Japan.、Mm-hmm. And you said there that Japan was hesitant to impose sanctions against Russia following the 2014 annexation of Crimea. With this most recent escalation and conflict in Ukraine, how has Japan responded in terms of sanctions against Russia? This time, Japan has、uh, basically kept pace with the 
strongest, the most stringent um, uh, American and, and European sanctions. Um, so that's meant everything from asset freezes and bans on um, officials running all the way up to President Putin himself. It's meant joining the West in, in blocking much of the Russian sort of financial in systems, Russian banks, access to the, the SWIFT payment system, which makes it hard essentially to send international money transfers, international wire transfers. And Japan has also um, significantly joined in, in freezing the Russian central bank's foreign currency reserves, um, which is a, a step that um, I think surprised even Western observers. It's about the most sort of drastic of all the measures. And and it's significant that Japan took part in this because about 10% of the Russian central bank's currency reserves are held uh, in Japan. Mm. Um, and, and that's about the same amount as, as the US and the UK combined. So Japan has a big sort of role to play there. And Japan's sanctions aren't just economic right. It's also placed export restrictions on high-tech goods like semiconductors and oil refinery equipment going to Russia and Belarus. Exactly, exactly. There's been a, a whole um, a whole swath of technologies and, and products that Japan has, has joined uh, in, in kind of banning. And we've you know seen now discussions, uh, though, though Japan hasn't quite moved on this question yet, but um, discussions about even oil uh, imports as well. I know that energy is one of the sectors in which Japan relies quite heavily on exports from Russia, but could you give me a sense of how intertwined the Russian and Japanese economies are at the moment? Yeah, so, you know, we, we shouldn't make too much of it. Um, they're not massive trade partners for each other. Japan's imports from Russia were, were about $11 billion in, in 2020. But the bulk of that is sort of commodities. So mm. things like um, wheat, but also, as you mentioned, uh, energy, oil and, and natural gas. And that's really the, the crux of the economic relationship between um, Japan and Russia, uh, Japanese sort of trading houses, commodity giants that work very closely um, with the Japanese state. They have deep ties to Russia, and in particular, LNG, liquid natural gas uh, projects on Sakhalin, which is a, a Russian island also north of, of Hokkaido. There's a, a project there called the Sakhalin 2 project, and about 60% of the LNG from that project goes to um, goes to Japan. Um, Mitsui and Mitsubishi have big stakes in that project, and it's raising some some you know some un comfortable questions uh, mm. for Japanese companies because we've seen a, a huge swath of, of uh, Western business exit Russia, cut off ties, shut down projects, mm. um, including oil and gas projects. Right. That Sakhalin 2 project you just mentioned was originally a collaboration that included Mitsui, Mitsubishi and also Shell. And Shell has now exited the project in the wake of the invasion. Yeah. We've seen Shell pull out of Sakhalin. We've seen, I think, Exxon also pull out of a, another oil project on, on Sakhalin. Uh, yeah, so the, the, the response, you know, in terms of sanctions, there's a, there's a state-level response. There are, are sort of official sanctions that governments are imposing, um, but there's also a private sector part of, of the response. And, and we're seeing companies around the world making the decision to, um, to stop operating in Russia. Mm -hmm. I think I read that about 350 Japanese companies currently operate in Russia, and this is actually a 60% increase from a decade ago. So clearly up until this point, Russia was quite a big growth market for Japanese companies who were moving in there and doing more and more business. Are we seeing Japanese companies follow suit with their Western counterparts and beginning to scale back or end their operations within Russia? 
Yeah, I think this is where things start to diverge a bit. At the very least, um, Japanese companies are moving more slowly in making these decisions. And the Japanese government, I think, is is equally concerned or is equally sort of hesitant to push them to move, especially when it comes to energy projects. There's lots of talk about the importance of maintaining energy security, of maintaining a diverse set of, of energy supplies. Mm. Uh, I think pressure is going to increase on uh, the Japanese government and on these companies. You know, Mitsubishi and Mitsui are, are sort of considering what's going on. Others have declined to comment. Some of the, the kind of consumer-facing companies, like car companies, um, it looks likely that they'll, they'll kind of shut down their local production once mm. um, their, their sort of current stocks run out. But others, for example, I, I, I just read as, as I was on my way over to record this podcast that Fast Retailing, the parent company of Uniqlo, is taking the stance that it will stay. And the thinking there is that you know, we don't want to set a precedent mm. um, that politics can guide business decisions. Um, and so I think people are, are in the Japanese business community are thinking not only of Russia, but also of China, uh, where, of course, there have been, you know, Western sanctions, for example, over uh, human rights abuses in, in Xinjiang that, that Japanese companies have been loath to, to, to mm. join because they don't want to upset their market there in China. So I think there's some some tricky balancing acts and hard calculations that Japanese businesses are, are trying to make at the moment. Mm -hmm. One thing we've seen from the US and Europe is a decision to ban Russian aircraft from their airspace. We're proposing a prohibition on all Russian-owned, Russian-registered and Russian-controlled aircraft. These aircraft will no more be able to land in, take off, or overfly the territory of the European Union. That's not happened yet in Japan, as far as I'm aware, but is it on the cards? Well, it's being discussed, but it hasn't happened. And, and uh, you know, a big reason is that if, uh, uh, you know, if you look at a map, you can see it's pretty, pretty tricky for Japanese planes to get to and from Europe without crossing Russian airspace. And so if Japan was to ban Russian uh, airlines or Russian aircraft from entering its airspace, um, they you know, would expect a, a reciprocal ban in, in, in return. You know, it's possible, but from what I've seen, it looks like it adds you know, a few hours, maybe three, four hours um, to flight times. But I think, um, again, this is another area where you're going to see more pressure from Western partners and, and uh, from Ukrainians themselves for Japan to, to join in. So it's another one of these kind of tricky decisions that the, the government and, and companies are going to have to make. Mm. I know that the new US ambassador to Japan, Rahm Emanuel, has asked the Japanese government to ban Russian aircraft from its airspace. But yeah, obviously they haven't taken that decision. It's interesting talking about the um, extended flight times because I know even though that ban hasn't been put in place, there have been reports of JAL, one of Japan's main carriers, resurrecting an old route to London that flew across Alaska, which takes 15 hours over the usual 11-hour route that goes across Russia from Tokyo to London. Um, yeah, back to the Cold War. Yes, uh, one of one of many ripple effects of this war, and, and I think we're already seeing big ripple effects in commodity markets, and you know, in particular in in energy. Um, so, you know, the Japanese government uh, has. has uh, uh, said it's going to sort of uh, beef up its its countermeasures to subsidize uh, oil wholesalers and, and try and keep fuel prices from rising too much. I think we also are, are likely to see um, rising food prices in, in the coming weeks and months. A lot of the world's wheat 
comes from Ukraine and Russia, and those supply chains are obviously going to be um, disrupted, if not um, sort of broken entirely. The the sanctions against Russia have been unprecedented, and and in my personal opinion, justified given what Putin has has done. But this is really the first time that such uh, extensive sh- sanctions have been leveled on. Uh, economy of of the size of Russia's and and of the sort of importance of Russia's to to global supply chains. We've talked about energy and wheat, but there's also all kinds of of, um, minerals and materials that the world depends in in part on on Russia for. So I think we're going to find out in the coming months what it means for, uh, for the rest of the world. Longer term, how do you think that this war is going to shape and change Japan's view of Russia? I mean, I think this very clearly has has closed off the path that Japan was on, um, namely um, trying to maintain a functional relationship with Russia, Mm. um, given Japan's involvement in the the sanctions regime against Russia. And I think also people recognize that Russia is going to become even more dependent on China in the wake of this. And any hopes that Japan had of kind of driving a wedge between them, I think, are are, are long gone. So Japan is due to, to revise its, its national security strategy later this year. And it seems likely that there's going to be a, a big revision with respect um, to, to Russia. It also seems that the talks on, on the, the Northern Territories issue uh, are going to be, at the very least, um, frozen for, for, uh, for the time being. And for the last decade or two, most of the regional security talk in Japan has been focused on China and what it means to coexist with an increasingly assertive China. How will the war change the broader security dynamic in East Asia for Japan? Yeah, it's a, it's a big question. And Obviously, the, the the first concern that a lot of people have is is, is how this will affect the, the situation around Taiwan uh, and China's intentions vis-a-vis Taiwan. Uh, and I think there are kind of two schools of thought that I hear, at least here in, in, in Tokyo. One is that this invasion by Russia actually might make a, a Chinese military move on Taiwan less likely, hmm. um, that the Chinese are seeing what um, has has happened in terms of the international response. They're seeing how Putin has sort of been made a, a pariah overnight and uh, they're taking note and, and that's not what the Chinese leadership ultimately wants. So that's, that's kind of one school of thought and maybe a more hopeful school of thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, a second school of thought is that it might increase the risk that China takes action on, on, on Taiwan because either it will leave the US and, and the West so distracted and bogged down in Europe that they won't be able to enact the the Indo-Pacific shift that everyone has been talking about. Mm. And also that China will have a chance to learn from Russia's experience with sanctions, that China will, will be studying closely and will be kind of preparing itself. I think there are a couple of other points worth worth mentioning. One is what this conflict will mean for nuclear proliferation. You know, Ukraine, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, had one of the world's 
largest nuclear arsenals. Uh, and Ukraine, in fact, gave that up voluntarily in 1994 and, and signed uh, what's known as the Budapest Memorandum, uh, which was a, a document both the US and Russia signed up to, mm. giving Ukraine sort of amorphous security guarantees in exchange for relinquishing its its nuclear weapons. Um, so there are you know, worries that, that leaders and, and governments around the world will be looking at what's happened and thinking that maybe actually um, having nuclear weapons Weapons is is really the um, uh, the only guarantee, true security guarantee, and the way we're seeing that sort of manifest here in Japan is is a revival of uh, discussions about what's called nuclear weapons sharing. Yes, perhaps unsurprisingly, the biggest voice in this discussion is former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who jumped on the opportunity to promote the idea of Japan entering some kind of NATO-style nuclear weapons sharing agreement. Although the current Prime Minister Kishida quickly responded and shot the idea down, calling it, quote-unquote, unacceptable. Exactly, exactly. But that debate is not happening here in Japan, which is is also striking. And finally, I think there's a, a uh, another piece, which is is the relationship with the rest of Asia. Um, I mean, if you look at at the response to this conflict, it's not only China that that has taken uh, Russia's side or, or or hasn't you know joined in on on the the Western response. It's also true of mm. a lot of countries in Southeast Asia and South Asia, um, in, in particular India, mm. um, which has a long um, standing relationship of its own with Russia, which buys most of its weapons from Russia, mm. uh, and they've kind of taken a, a you know neutral stance on this um, conflict. So. So that is causing some tension in the um, the so-called quad grouping, and the same is true, I think, you know, with with a lot of countries in, in Southeast Asia that aren't necessarily ready to jump on the the kind of Western um, uh, consensus position on on this conflict. So that's going to make uh, Japanese diplomacy, Japanese foreign policy, a bit more challenging going forward. Well, on that note, Noah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. That was Noah Snyder, the Tokyo Bureau Chief for The Economist. I've put links to his social media, including his War in Translation Twitter account, in the show notes. Do check that out if you think you can offer support. Also in the Japan Times this week, Japan's Justice Minister announced on Tuesday that the country has so far accepted just eight Ukrainian nationals displaced by the Russian invasion. The eight refugees all have relatives or acquaintances in Japan and have been granted an initial 90-day residence permit. In South Korea, polls opened today to 44 million eligible voters as the country elects its next president. Results are expected early morning on Thursday, March 10th. The new president will have to deal with a whole host of local diplomatic issues, including the country's frosty relationship with Japan and a missile-loving North Korea. That's it for this week. To keep up to date with Japan's response to the war in Ukraine, do follow along with Japan Times' coverage. If you've enjoyed this episode, please write us a review or rate us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We'll be back next week, but until then, as always, Podskale Summer. Podskale Summer.